Professor Hopkins is the author of Asymmetric Politics and uh, also Red Fighting Blue, How Geography and Electoral Rules Polarize American Politics, about which he will speak this afternoon. He appears frequently in the news media as a political analyst and blogs regularly about American politics on honestgraft.com. He also serves as an expert commentator on American politics for news media organizations such as the Washington Post, Boston Globe, Fox, and National, that's Vox, V-O-X, and NPR. This afternoon, Professor Hopkins will place the current partisan and electoral era in historical context and discuss how the widening geographic gap in voters' partisan preferences, magnified further by winner-take-all electoral rules, has rendered most of the nation safe territory for either Democratic or Republican candidates in both presidential and congressional elections. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Hopkins. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here today. And uh, I'm going to talk for a bit about, about the book, and then uh, we'll have uh, plenty of time for, for questions. I'm very interested to, to hear what's on your mind as well. So um, I'll, I'll start out by saying a little bit about what prompted uh, me to write this book. And, and part of it is, is comes from... Um, looking at other research that's that's happening in political science about our current uh, political state of affairs here in the United States. Uh, everybody agrees that our politicians have become a lot more polarized. Um, and there are many ways to measure that and to demonstrate that um, scientifically. Um, here's one of them. If you, uh, if you measure the, the, using the voting records of members of Congress, you place them on a left to right ideological spectrum, and you sort of see what the distribution is in each party. Uh, over time, um, we've seen a clear divergence between Democratic and Republican members of Congress. So the left-hand graph here, we have um, the 93rd Congress of 1973 and 74, sort of the good old days before polarization. And what we see is the blue are the Democrats and the red are the Republicans. The Democrats are obviously mostly more liberal than the Republicans, but there's a fair amount of overlap. There are a fair amount of of members of Congress that sort of sit in that middle category, sort of in the, the center or moderate uh, position. And you can see there are even some Republicans who are kind of somewhat to the left of center. There are some Democrats to the right of center. There's some, uh, in fact, uh, places where the parties, uh, where the parties overlap. Uh, cut to a more recent Congress, say uh, uh, almost uh, 40 years later, the 112th Congress, and you can see the movement that's happened where the Democrats are somewhat to the left of where they used to be, the Republicans are even farther to the right of where they used to be, and there's this gap in the middle. There's no longer any overlap at all between the parties. And, you know, there are lots of other ways we can talk about how you would how we define polarization, how we measure polarization, that really everybody agrees in political science that our politicians are polarized and becoming more so uh, by the year. What's a little bit less settled among my scholarly colleagues are, well, how polarized are the rest of us? How polarized are the, are the voters, are the American public? 
Um, some scholars, in fact, say, well, not very, especially not in comparison to politicians. They point out that there are many voters who consider themselves to be ideological moderates, even if there aren't so many ideological moderates uh, serving these days in Congress. They point out that lots of voters, in fact, hold uh, political positions on issues that are not consistently all on the liberal or the conservative end of the spectrum. Politicians tend to be much more um, uh, predictable. You know their position on one issue. You're pretty sure their position on other issues. Voters are a lot less predictable. They're a little bit more, a lot more idiosyncratic. And so um, for that reason, we could sort of think of voters as still, even uh, today, not quite so polarized. And of course, a significant number of voters uh, still consider themselves to be political independents. They don't identify with a party, whereas, of course, uh, virtually all uh, elected officials are members of one or the other party. So there are some scholars who uh, sort of suggest that polarization is a phenomenon that's sort of happening you know, in Washington, in um, state legislatures, other sort of e elite uh, circles, but not really happening out in the mass public, not in the rest of the country. Um, but some other political scientists don't agree. Uh, they say, no, yes, uh, actually. Sorry, I get that. Quite a bit, actually. They say, no, that's, that's not right. If we look at changes over time, we see that voters, too, have become more polarized. They have become more ideologically consistent, um, and they have become very much more party loyal than they used to be. And so we should think of polarization at, at, at the level of politicians as not a phenomenon that's happening in isolation from changes in the electorate, changes in public opinion out uh, in the uh, country at large. And this is a debate that sort of has been going on for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. Um, and there are, there are strong adherents on both sides. And if you go to a political science conference, you'll hear people sort of line up on um, one side or the other. And it's a debate that matters for both analytical and normative reasons. In other words, it matters because we're interested as political scientists simply in well, what's true, what, what's descriptively accurate about uh, about the voters, uh, do the voters resemble the politicians? Do they look different? You know, we want to sort of understand what's going on. But there's also a normative component because uh, this gets at questions of, of democratic representation. How well are the politicians who are elected to represent us actually faithfully representing our views? If you believe that uh, the American public is not very polarized, then it means that um, there's some sort of breakdown, there's some sort of disconnect between the preferences of the public and the uh, actions of our politicians in Washington. On the other hand, uh, if you believe that voters, too, have become a lot more polarized over time, well, you might not like polarization, but you at least have to sort of acknowledge that it, it does seem to be um, a faithful representation of what the public is demanding of our politicians. They want our politicians to fight and argue and disagree, and this is exactly what uh, they are doing. 
So when we think about the mechanics of representation, of course, in a uh, representative democracy, um, we, we can sort of think about this debate as positing two possible uh, uh, pictures of what's going on. Um, if you believe the voters are polarized, just like the politicians, to the same extent as the pol politicians, then there's a kind of a simple straight line between the preferences of the voters and the actions of the representatives. That's representative democracy at work. We might not uh, always, always like it, but we have to acknowledge the majority is getting what it wants. On the other hand, if you believe that it's not the voters who are polarized, only the politicians are polarized, then we have this sort of, uh, you know, broken area here. We have this sort of disconnect. We have this gap, this gap between the preferences of the voters and uh, uh, the, the behavior of the politicians. And then that sort of raises questions about, well, how is democracy actually functioning? How is representative democracy actually functioning? How is it that these politicians have managed to insulate themselves from the preferences of the people that they serve? My sort of view about this debate, and I think it's a fascinating, very important one, is that it's a little bit too simple. And the reason it's too simple is because it sort of suggests that the relationship between what voters want and what voters prefer and what politicians do is sort of this very simple choice, sort of either or, where either there's either representation that's working just fine or there's been this huge breakdown in the system somehow and, you know, the politicians have sort of gone off on their own and left the voters completely behind. My view, and this is sort of what prompted me in part to write this book, is to say, well, we have to think a little bit more carefully about what the system actually is that provides representation in our form of government. That, in fact, it's a little bit more complicated. Um, and that we have this sort of, um, you know, I decided a squiggly line means complicated here. We have some sort of a, a, a meandering uh, but a connection between what voters do and what voters want and what the representatives do. And really what's going on here, I think that is not always being uh, appreciated, is that there's sort of in between the vote and what we end up seeing in government, there's this complex set of electoral rules and institutions that structure who wins, who serves, what constituents do they serve, how often do they come up to vote, what are their relations with other actors within the political system, and so on. And if we're trying to understand the relationship between voters and represent, representatives in, in, in the context of political polarization, we need to take greater account of what's going on here. Um, that in fact these rules and institutions can be very important in sort of transforming whatever it is that voters do into ultimately the representation that we get. And there can be some very important implications of the specific rules and institutions we have in the United States that are very relevant to understanding why polarization is happening and what, uh, what uh, uh, sort of propels it and perpetuates it uh, in our current politics. And the, the electoral rules and institutions, I think, are most important in this case. Um, are two uh, uh, sort of long-standing uh, foundational aspects of the American electoral system, which are geographically defined constituencies and winner-take-all elections. And what I want to sort of uh, uh, discuss today is how these two um, attributes working together actually help to exaggerate the level of polarization. They sort of transform the um, 
actions of voters into a much more polarized, a significantly more polarized uh, set of uh, elected representatives. Um, and this is sort of the missing part of the missing piece of the story here about the relationship between the preferences of the public uh, and the, uh, the actions of the politicians in office. So let me give you an example of how these, um, the geographically defined constituencies and winner-take-all elections work together in, to help to polarize um, our politics. So um, let's start out talking about uh, the red states and the blue states. Um, here's, uh, here's a blue state, Oregon, and a red state, South Carolina, sort of typical um, in our politics today, um, Oregon's pretty consistently Democratic, uh, has two Democratic uh, senators, it has a majority Democratic uh, House delegation, it's voted for the Democratic presidential candidate uh, in every election since 1988. Um, it's sort of a, what we think of as sort of a typical blue state in our current politics. And South Carolina, likewise, is a consistently red state with mostly re Republican congressional delegation, votes consistently Republican uh, in every, every election since 1980. Um, and when you think about, well, what are the politics of Oregon? What are the politics of South Carolina? What sort of first comes to mind is we sort of might think of them as very, very different. Um, right, sort of in our, our current kind of, uh, our, our sense of uh, the reputation, right, of each state. We think of the politics of Oregon and we might think of, uh, you know, uh, we might think of a bunch of uh, tree huggers um, and radical feminists and um, uh, animal rights activists and people like that living in Portland with their tandem bicycles and their artisanal uh, uh, crafts and everything like that. And we might think as a sort of, uh, you know, uh, a lefty paradise. Um, on the other hand, when we think about South Carolina, we might think about um, evangelical Christians. We might think of a very conservative political culture. We might think of uh, Bob Jones University and other um, uh, very conservative uh, uh, religious institutions. And we might think of a politics there that, that couldn't be more different um, from the politics of um, of Oregon, um, and this is sort of the popular, you know, our sort of popular sense of of the, the a, a, a huge difference from one part of the country to another. Now, there are times when the sort of stereotypes, political stereotypes of of places are are pretty accurate. Um, I lived in Berkeley, California, for a while. If anything, it, the stereotypes aren't true enough um, about. Uh, what politics can be like there. But if you sort of look at the numbers and, uh, about, um, about Oregon and, and South Carolina, um, you know, they're maybe not as different um, as we might uh, uh, sort of first suspect. Um, in the last presidential election, the two-party vote in Oregon, um, Hillary Clinton got 56 uh, percent of the two-party vote and Donald Trump got 44, whereas in South Carolina it was almost precisely the reverse, Trump 57%, Clinton 43%. Now, in, in elections, uh, winning a, a state by 10 or, or, or 11 or, or 12 or 14 points is, is considered a fairly safe win. It, it's not like there was really much doubt on election night about which uh, a, a party was going to carry each of these states. The candidates didn't really bother to come and contest each of these states. They sort of wrote them off, uh, very, very predictable. But in terms of the actual uh, state of public opinion in uh, Oregon versus South Carolina, they're not 
completely polar opposites. Um, if you just picked a, a random Oregonian and asked who did you vote for, um, nine of 20 of them would be Trump voters. Uh, and similarly in South Carolina, about nine of 20 of them would be would be Clinton voters. And so it's not that there's a sort of unanimity or overwhelming popular uh, advantage for one party or the other inherently in each of these states. Um, what's really happening is that we have a winner-take-all electoral system, and so once one party has a, a sort of a secure majority, the whole state becomes safe, okay? And the whole state, you know, elects representatives who are very loyal to one party uh, or the other. So when we think about Oregon and South Carolina in Congress, well, yeah, they do look really different. Um, Oregon elects these liberal Democrats to office. Here's uh, their senior Senator Ron Wyden getting off of Air Force One with former President Obama, his, his buddy, his political ally. Um, at the same time, South Carolina uh, elected a member of the House, you may remember this from a few years back, named Joe Wilson, who actually, uh, in the midst of an address by President Obama to Congress, yelled out, you lie, at the president, and became, this is him in, in action there, uh, and became a sort of a conservative hero. So these relatively minor sort of inherent differences in our uh, you know, in, in, in the distribution of, of the, the party support from one state to the other, because of our winner-take-all politics uh, based on uh, state boundaries, wind, we wind up with these very polarized outcomes. And so when we think about the polarization that we see in, in Congress, you know, it's reflective of the fact that so many of the states and House districts that uh, our representatives are elected from are safe enough for one party or the other that even if there's a substantial minority, numerical major minority in each of these places, it doesn't really matter too much. Even if it were 80 to 20 or 90 to 10 in these states, you might not end up with very different people elected than the people we get uh, uh, representing the red and the blue states today. So then the question is, well, has this changed over time? Do we see a difference in the geographic constituencies of the parties? Do we see more safe states and districts? Do we see more of these constituencies that can be sort of predictably Democratic or Republican than we have in the past? And the answer is yes. And a lot of the book is sort of demonstrating that we've, over the past 25 years or so, entered a kind of a new era in American politics where electoral outcomes are a lot more predictable, where they're a lot more different from one part of the country uh, to another, and where uh, the outcomes in presidential elections more closely match the outcomes in congressional elections. And so a state that's a blue state in one race is much more likely to be a blue state in another race, regardless of the specific candidates that are running. Um, and sort of, you know, one of the main conclusions I take away from this is we should think very carefully about these trends out in the country in terms of where the states and regions align themselves with the Democrats and Republicans in order to make sense of why it is that polarization in Congress and polarization among uh, elected office holders has grown uh, to the extent that it has. 
So one thing that we know when we talk about uh, red states and blue states these days is that, in fact, um, most states are very predictably either red or blue. Um, this is a sort of a composite map from the last five consecutive presidential elections, starting with the election in 2000, which, of course, was sort of the election that famously gave us the terms red states and blue states, which is very handy for, for the people in my line of work, which are know what we're talking about. Um, we've decided that the blue is the Democrats and the red are the Republicans. Um, the vast majority of states have voted for the same party for the, each of the last five elections, despite the fact that we've had different candidates running. We've had a lot happen in American politics since 2000, um, both in terms of domestic affairs, foreign affairs, economics, um, all the rest. We've had some fascinating and memorable political figures uh, nominated in both parties uh, since, uh, since the 2000 election. And yet the overall geographic picture has been very, very similar from one election to the next. Um, and most states now, we know even before, even years ahead of time, we can predict. You know, in 2020, we don't know who's going to win the 2020 election, but, you know, I'll, I'm happy to take bets on, uh, you know, on the idea that California will go to the Democrat, uh, Oklahoma will go to the Republican. This was not always true in the past. The states used to be somewhat uh, more uh, 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 unpredictable and shift much more from one election uh, to the next. But now we have most states sort of firmly in control of either the Democrats uh, or the Republicans. And that has really changed over time. The average margin that a candidate wins a state by in presidential elections um, started to go up in the 1990s, um, and uh, it's gone up ever since. And so, um, whereas 40 years ago, the average state, um, you know, differed from the national vote by about 10 percentage points, by 2016, it had doubled to, to 20 percentage points. And so the, average, the typical state is very much a predictable partisan state um, in elections these days. That wasn't always the case. Um, and as a result, the number of battleground states have gone down. Um, if you go back, again, 40-plus uh, years, it used to be most of the states were in play. When Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford ran against each other in 1976, um, they contested about 80% of the country. Basically, about four out of every five states was basically up for grabs. And almost all the big states in those days were up. They were swing states, California, Texas, New York, Illinois. Um, none of those are swing states these days. Um, starting again, especially in the, in the 90s, um, but continuing after, we saw a steady decline in the number of swing states. So in the last few elections, only about 30% of the country is actively contested by the presidential candidates and everybody else is sort of on the sidelines. So if it seems like these days, Whenever we have a presidential election, a national election, you hear an awful lot about Ohio and Florida, you know, and Pennsylvania year after year, and the candidates are going to the same few states again and again and again, and the rest of the country is sort of, uh, is sort of out of the loop. That's, that's, uh, you know, that's not just, uh, our perceptions talking. That's, uh, absolutely true. Um, that this, that because our, most of these states have become safe party states, it really affects how the, how the 
candidates behave and where they uh, where they spend their time, where they invest their uh, their advertising dollars, uh, and all the rest. And because we have this map that is not only polarized but very stable from one election to another. A swing state today tends to be a swing state tomorrow, or as a red or a blue state today tends to be a red or a blue state uh, tomorrow. And uh, you know, again, it, it, it's uh, it's not just in one election. It's it's uh, it's been something that's been uh, that's been uh, uh, evolving over over a long period of time, regardless of which party wins, regardless of which candidate um, is running. The other thing, as I said, that's important about what's changed lately in presidential uh, and, and congressional politics has been a much more close match between the way states vote in presidential elections and the way they vote in congressional elections. Um, it used to be that we had lots of split-ticket voting, and vote, lots of voters would vote for one party for president and the opposite party for Congress. And so we ended up with states that might be, they might be a red state in presidential elections, but they might have uh, 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 Democratic senators, Democratic members of Congress, Democratic uh, governors and state legislatures. We've seen over time a fairly significant decline in the, the, the number of states that sort of are split from one party to the next depending on the office. Um, and, and in fact, these are the, the number of, uh, the, the solid line here is the number of House districts that go for opposite parties in the House election and the presidential election. Um, and again, 40 years ago, there were some elections where 40, over 40% 40 of House districts went for both ways. It was usually Republican for President, Democrat for Congress. Um, in recent elections, that's less than now less than 10% of districts are split that way. Um, and in the Senate, we've seen an even more dramatic decline, where there were some elections where half the the Senate races would go to the party that lost the presidential race in the state. So there was a very tenuous connection between how states voted for Senate and how they voted for president. Um, and that has declined to the point that in 2016, for the first time since we had the popular election of senators, every single Senate race was won by the same party that carried the state in the presidential election. There were zero split states. All right. So if you're a politician from, you know, from a state, in the past, you might well be representing a state that voted for the other party in the presidential election. So even if you got elected yourself, you might worry that if you get too extreme, if you move too far to the left or the right, that the voters uh, might, uh, you know, sort of lose their uh, lose their support, um, and you might uh, you might be vulnerable in the next election. Today, because the states are so much more predictable and so much more secure, um, a lot of members of Congress don't really have to worry that much about losing uh, a general election to an opposite party candidate. And so they don't have that constraint on their ideological uh, uh, positioning in office the way that they might have in the past. Um, and again, this has been a big change really just over sort of a generation or so um, of American politics. And because we have these winner-take-all rules, you know, this is what politicians care about. They just care about who wins, what are my chances of winning, I just need 50% plus one uh, of the vote to, to retain my seat. And so the fact that we have these winner-take-all elections means that what has been a, a somewhat a notable but but relatively modest divergence in the popular vote between what we might call red America and blue America, that gets exaggerated when we have elections because of the winner-take-all system, and so we end up with a much larger divide in terms of representation. 
Um, so in this graph, the, the dashed lines here over time are the popular vote in the red states and the blue states. Blue states and blue, red states and red. Um, and going to the top of the graph is, is higher percentage for Democratic candidates. Um, and so starting in the 1990s, what are now the blue states started to vote more Democratic for Senate. Um, averaging about 60-some percent by the last election uh, of their popular vote for Senate, whereas the Republican, uh, the red states now vote Republican for the Senate by about you know, 58 to 42 in the last election. But because of our winner-take-all system, we end up with a much greater divide in the seats. So in blue America, more than 90% of the Senate seats are held now by Democrats. In red America, more than 80% of the Senate seats are held by Republicans. And so what has been a trend at sort of at one level um, of intensity in our, among the voters in our electorate becomes a trend with a much greater level intensity when we look at who actually wins elections. Um, and so once again, we see the sort of intensifying um, effect of our electoral rules and our geographically-based constituents on the people who are selected to, uh, to represent us in Washington. And so let's go back to our old friends, Oregon and South Carolina. Again, to a typical blue state today and a typical red state. Um, in the past, or even Oregon and South Carolina were not nearly as predictable and not nearly as partisan um, as they are today. They used to elect uh, can, uh, regular, for regularly candidates uh, from both political parties. Um, and these were distinctive. Um, uh, Oregon, for a long time, had two moderate Republican senators. One of them, uh, Mark Catfield, served for 30 years uh, in the Senate from Oregon as a moderate Republican, a centrist Republican. Um, whereas uh, South Carolina, similarly, used to elect moderate Democrats. Uh, Senator Fritz Hollings, um, who served uh, uh, 38 years um, as, uh, as the uh, uh, senator from, from South Carolina, as a moderate Democrat. So whereas in the past, voters in these states were, were willing to sort of vote for both parties if, especially if the sort of one of the parties elected or nominated someone moderate, that person had a good shot of winning. And so when we think about who used to be these moderates in Congress that are disappearing, they're um, overwhelmingly Republicans from what are now the blue states, the, the predictably blue states, or they're Democrats from what are now the predictably red states. So again, when we think about polarization in Congress and how that's progressed over time, we can't really um, divorce that from the changes at the electoral level in these particular states and regions of the country. That the people who used to be the kind of center block in Congress um, sort of fit one of two profiles, moderate Southern Democrats or Western Democrats or moderate Northeastern or coastal Western uh, Republicans. And these are the types of representatives who are sort of the most vulnerable from this trend of increasingly predictable red and blue state voting. Um, they're no longer able to sort of overcome the lean of their state uh, or their district the way they used to. And so that's led to this sort of transformational change in the way that Congress itself uh, has been conducted. Um, over time, when moderates leave Congress 
whether because they lose an election or they decide to retire. They are increasingly replaced by non-moderates from the opposite party. It used to be more common in the 70s that if a moderate candidate, these are the, the darkest is uh, the, where the replacement can, uh, uh, in Congress is himself or herself a moderate. So when a moderate retires or gets defeated, who, and who uh, takes over that seat? Well, it used to be often another moderate would. And so the moderates would, so the individual moderates might lose and they might retire, but they'd be replaced by new moderates in Congress. But over time, what's happened is fewer and fewer of the moderates, the departing moderates, are replaced by fellow moderates. More and more of them are replaced by either liberals or conservatives from the opposite party of their own. That's the sort of the lightest uh, uh, sort of violet uh, part, uh, lavender maybe, part of this graph. Um, this is the part that's becoming more common. It, by, by the 2010s, the vast majority of departing moderates, whether because they retired or they lost, the uh, new person in that seat is from the opposite party and they are not a moderate. So again, this is southern moderate Democrats who are either losing to or being succeeded by very conservative southern Republicans or it's moderate uh, uh, Northern Republicans that are uh, defeated or succeeded uh, by liberal Democrats. And so what that has meant for Congress has been a polarization not just by party but by region. Um, and these are, um, this is a graph um, with the uh, um, uh, with the, uh, the the red parts of America in in the uh, red and the blue parts of America in the blue, and the uh, the, the uh, axis here is simply the mean ideological position. Um, down here is towards the liberal side. Here's the center, and then here's the conservative side. So prior to the 1990s. Um, Southerners and Northerners didn't consistently look that much different in terms of how they voted collectively as blocks in Congress. Um, but starting in the 1990s and you know, accelerating thereafter, the representatives of what we now think of as the red states have become much more conservative than they used to be. And the representatives of what we now call the blue states have become much more liberal than they used to be. And so we have this um, incredibly sort of arresting divergence in terms of the voting behavior of members of Congress on the floor of the House and the Senate by region that didn't used to be there. Um, and so that's a lot of the story about where those, you know, where those disappearing centrists went off to. They've been replaced by a very different set uh, of representatives because of these changes in our electoral uh, trends. So then that leaves the question of why. Why is it that the voters started voting differently? Why is it that the voters in one part of the country now vote more differently than voters of the other part of the country than they used to. Well, this may not be a shock to you, but the answer is the culture war. Um, it turns out that in public opinion, the difference between red and blue America on cultural issues like abortion, like same-sex marriage, like gun control, is a lot different than the, a lot greater than the difference between red and blue America on sort of the bread and butter economic issues that used to be the main things that divided the party. Taxes and spending, health care, social security, um, and so forth. Um, this is just a summary of public opinion data 
whoops, um, over, over, over time, the dashed lines are economic issues, and the red is economic views in red states, and the blue dashed line is economic views in blue states. And we go more conservative here, more liberal here. Well, there is a bit of a difference, consistent difference over time. People in, in red states are a little bit more economically conservative than people in blue states, but it's not that big a difference. Um, it's maybe getting a little bit bigger, but it's still a lot smaller than these solid lines, which are the difference between the cultural views of blue America's residents and the cultural views of red America's re residents, where there's a much more consistent and larger gap um, over the past 30 years. That blue America is consistently culturally more liberal than red America. And starting in the 1990s, we saw these cultural issues become much more salient in American politics. We saw the, uh, the George Bush's re-election campaign in 1992, which was based on family values. We saw the rise of Bill Clinton as sort of the face of the Democratic Party and identified with uh, cultural uh, liberalism, Hillary Clinton as well, um, of course. And we saw issues like abortion, gay rights, school prayer, um, gun control become much more salient national issues than they had been during the New Deal era or even the 1960s and 1970s. And so as those issues became more important to uh, politicians and they started talking more about them, the voters started uh, to vote more on the basis of those issues than they had before. And so what we wound up with is a politics where economic issues still matter, Voters have not forgotten those issues. They still vote very much based on how they view issues like Social Security, taxes, Medicare, and so forth. But because those views don't vary very much from red states to blue states, they can't really account for why the countries become geographically divided, even though they can often account for how individual citizens vote. It's the cultural dimension of public opinion that really accounts for why red America and blue America as a collective vote differently. And that is what has changed. And so we have this sort of interesting system, sort of set of events, where the rise of the culture war has polarized Congress, not only on culture, but on economics as well. And of course, Congress spends most of its time debating taxes and spending and those sorts of things, economic issues. But because Congress has been uh, sort of steadily deprived of the moderates that used to serve in both parties from uh, Democrats from the South, Republicans from the Northeast and, and the West, um, we wind up with a, with a Congress that's polarized about everything, right? And the fights over tax reform, the fights over the Affordable Care Act are just as um, uh, uh, loud and raucous and polarizing and divided as the debates over the cultural issues themselves. And so the broad polarization of political elites comes from the rise of cultural issues specifically as salient in the minds um, of voters. And, and what's happened over time has been that now there's a very strong relationship between um, how religious a state is and how likely it is to vote Republican in presidential elections. The bold states here are the states that voted for Trump uh, in 2016, and this x-axis is the percent of state residents who are very religious. 
um, and can see the southern states tend to be the highest, some of the western states, those are the, the red states, whereas the least re relatively less religious states uh, are the states that are now the blue states in the northeast. Um, and this is how much they've shifted since 1988. The biggest shifts, for example, have been in New England. New England's not a very religious uh, part of the country, um, but it used to have a lot of Republicans. Vermont used to be a safe Republican state up until about 40 years ago. Now, of course, it elects Bernie Sanders. So, you know, these are the sorts of changes that have been particularly important for understanding what's going on. So, what are we left with in the 21st century in American politics? We're left with two parties that at the national level are very closely matched. We have one close election after another. We have control of Congress in both chambers that is very, very evenly split with narrow margins of control between the Democrats and the Republicans in the sort of the collective national picture. However, most states, house districts, and even regions are dominated by one party based mostly on the cultural preferences of the majority because those winner-take-all electoral rules entrench the majority party uh, in an increasingly secure electoral position. And even the presence of a moderate candidate usually now fails to dislodge enough voters from their existing party loyalties to allow for minority party victory, which encourages polarization. If politicians don't feel vulnerable in general elections, they're much less likely to compile moderate voting records than if they felt there was a chance they might lose to the opposition. Um, and because fewer of them feel insecure than, than they did a generation ago, they're more free to vote a liberal or conservative line. And so I'll leave you with questions that I don't myself quite have the answers to, but I think sort of come up uh, uh, naturally from, from, uh, from the, this evidence. Um, questions about how well are America's, Americans being represented in government? Should we think of the polarization that's happening in Washington as something that has nothing to do with the preferences of the public? Should we think of it as a, just a simple mirror image of the preferences of the public? Or should we think of representation as a much more complicated process and complicated picture um, where differences at the electoral level are getting exaggerated? Who's responsible for polarization's consequences? Is it just the parties and the politicians that we should blame, or does some responsibility, assuming you think polarization's a bad thing, maybe you don't, uh, but most people think it's a bad thing and they're looking for someone to blame and they say it's the parties and the politicians' fault. Well, maybe the, the truth is a little more complicated as well and part of the responsibility falls on changes at the, at the level of the electorate. And then finally, how might polarization be reversed? If this is how we got here, how do we get out of here? How do we return to a less polarized uh, uh, politics with a, a, large, a larger share of ideological moderates in office? How do we sort of reverse these trends? Um, again, I don't completely have the answers to those, but I, uh, I invite speculation <laughs> uh, at, at, at leisure in, in the Q&A. And we'll, with that, I'll turn it over to you.